In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. For those of, of us who are here doing our prayer in front of the crib scene that we just put up, we can ask uh, the Holy Spirit to help us in the way that he wants to go more deeply into the reality of, of Christ's birth and what it means for us. And again, as this is a time of prayer, I, I encourage each one of you here and, and listening that, um, to ask the Holy Spirit. Help me to celebrate Christmas with all of its uh, joy and all, all that it is, is, that all that God wants to inspire in our souls in, um, in celebrating his birthday, the fact that Jesus became a man and what that means for us and what it means for me in our daily lives. And although it's very counterintuitive, or doesn't seem to follow this meditation on preparing for Christmas and the reality that God became man, the incarnation. We have the crash scene to help us. I thought I'd start with a story about an exorcism, which is, uh, again, not usual. This is a story that's related to the, from the life of, uh, life of St. John of the Cross. As you know, he is a contemporary with St. Teresa of Avila, worked closely with her, and she asked him to investigate a situation where there was a nun who was giving prophecies and it was kind of strange. They weren't quite sure where these were coming from, uh, saying different things. The long and the short of it is when, when St. John of the Cross finally got there, he didn't want to do it. Of course, a very holy man. But since he was asked by St. Teresa of Avila, he did. And his superiors asked him to do it. He had all the proper permissions, if you will. He's interviewing this person who is supposedly having these locutions and talking about different things. He says, now my child, let us consider the cornerstone of our faith. Be so good as to translate this passage from St. John's Gospel. Verbum caro factum est, et habitavit in nobis. She said, translating, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among you. She translated without hesitation. And St. John of the Cross says, how so, you? The apostle says, among us, at Habitavit in Nobis. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the nun at that moment screeched out and said, he was made flesh and dwelt among you, not us. She shrieked and the, the demons that possessed the unfortunate young woman. It's, um, it's always impacted me that the devils know the reality of the incarnation very well, that God became man and became one of us. He dwelt among us. Jesus took on our human nature. And this is a mystery, as St. John Paul II would say, is a mystery before which 
we can only fall down on our knees and contemplate in faith. And that's what I invite you to do now. That God, Jesus, took on our, our human nature. He became like us in everything except for sin. And that's an amazing thing. The difference between God becoming man is, 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 is different than, than one of us becoming um, uh, 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 an insect, a worm. Uh, and maybe this will also sound um, strange to you, or at least I hope it doesn't in, insult anybody's in, intelligence. Uh, teaching fourth grade is a wonderful thing because fourth graders, they, they, they love stories and they, they believe everything with this childlike simplicity, which is very beautiful to see. It's a wonderful thing. You teach, you teach them about their guardian angel and they, uh, they, um, they immediately want to name their, their guardian angel. But they, the, the, the quickness with which they, the, the uh, complete acceptance of the fact that, that God became a child and you ask them, you know, mm, what do you think that means? What does that mean for you, that God became man? And, and immediately with this, with this great simplicity, they say, well, it means that he, he loved us so much, you know, that he wanted to become like us. And did, was that something that was, was difficult for him, or, or was it a big jump? And, and sometimes they'll say, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was more, than, more than, maybe I prepared him a little bit, but they would say, you know, more than becoming like a worm, they would say, because they like worms, more than becoming like a worm. And you know, I'd ask them, would any of you want to become a worm? And, and every, in every class, at least one or two, yeah, you know, they put up their hand because they want to play in the mud, you know, go outside, not have to go to school. Typical, I mean, typical kind of reasoning. But they had this sense that the leap from God to man is something that is, is much greater, at least in their minds, they had at least... Like a man becoming a worm, and you say, I wouldn't want to become a worm to live in the mud and not be able to think and play and see the sun and all these things. They realize that it's, and it is. I mean, it's from the infinite to the finite. An infinite nature, and he imprisons himself to a certain degree, and say, imprisons himself in a finite nature. A human nature, which is rational, has will, has intellect, but that God lowers himself that far. And it is a mystery. And St. John Paul II, using his words, we'll go from the fourth graders to St. John Paul II, he says, it seems that God has gone too far. And this is something that I invite you to think about. And Dorothy Sayers, a writer who's most known for her Peter Wimsley novels, but she, um, she knew C.S. Lewis and she knew Tolkien. She... Um, at one point, she, she, she takes on this. What does it mean, the incarnation? What does it mean that God became man? Well, this is not just pious commonplace, she says, tripe or cheap talk. It is not commonplace at all. For, it means, for what it means is this, that for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited in suffering and subject to death, and he, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he played fair. He, cannot, he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. 
He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of daily life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and he died in disgrace. And he thought it well worthwhile. And that last line, it falls far short of the reality. He thought it all worthwhile, more than that. It seems God was absolutely determined that that would be the case. That in his infinite wisdom, of all the possible worlds that could be, that only God could understand, or even comprehend, I had better said, he chose a world where he would create free beings with a desire to bring them into his, into his life, but that those free beings would rebel against him, and he would cure that rebellion by becoming like them, becoming one with them. And this is what Christmas is about. This is what we should see when we see the, this is what we would, should think when we see the child Jesus in the manger. It's not that we have to go to the heights of a kind of mystical experience, but that we would understand more fully. And again, asking our Lord to help us, asking the Holy Spirit. This game, as Dorothy Sarah says, this history that God is writing. He wanted to be a part of it, the human history. And he jumped into it fully, coming into this world as every other human being comes into this world, as a child, needing absolutely everything. Needing Mary and Joseph's attention, needing the love of Mary and Joseph, the embrace, the warmth, needing to be fed, needing to be changed, needing to be picked up and cared for. God. Because not just he thought it worthwhile, but he wants to be with us. So we go back to our fourth grade. He said, if, if, a, if a person really wanted to become a worm, if you really wanted to become a worm, you know, there's this movie, The Incredible Mr. Lippet, I think, when I was growing up, had Don Knotts in it, I believe. He becomes a fish because he loved fish, you know. But I mean, you ask him, if you want to be, why would a person really become a, want to become a worm? Well, one is he wants to get out of school, wants to play in the mud, or he really likes worms. Well, God becomes man because he wants to share his life because he really loves us. But it's a love that is almost it, very difficult for us to understand, fully comprehend. But this is a world he made, and this is a world he wants to come into, that he did come into. And when we see the child Jesus in the manger, when yesterday the child Jesus was here in our nativity scene, and he's not here now. It's waiting for Christmas. I hope somebody knows where it is, but it will be here. And when we see the child Jesus, I mean, this is what we should remember. This is what we should, I mean, to, as St. John Paul II, fall down in our knees in adoration, or at least interiorly, say, Lord, what is this that you're doing? What is, why do you come and dwell among us as the... The, the devil in this exorcism can say that, that John of the Cross ejected it with this beautiful line. You know, translate this line for me. Et abitavit in nobis. 
He dwelt among us. And the, the devil can say, he dwelt among you. Do you know what that means? And I say, I, I tell her, you know, I don't. I've preached it many years. Every Christmas I look at it. And at least for the last five years, I've been trying to understand it more. It is not common. I mean, it's extraordinary. And that's why the church says, look, you've got four weeks to prepare for this, all of Advent. You're going to accompany the Israelite people in, in, their, in their desires for the Messiah, in their desires for salvation. And you're going to read about the first inklings of, of, of this plan for God that God has for man. Your salvation will be brought about because God wants to be with you, wants to join you, wants to live among you, wants to understand and know what your experiences are like firsthand, not just because he knows you inside out because he created you, but with you, being there. This is absolutely, this is the joyful, the joyful reality. of This is why it's, it's a time of, of, of great joy. Pope Benedict, in his book about Jesus of Nazareth, and the um, in a series on um, the about the life of Jesus and the infancy narratives, he speaks about the Annunciation. A striking feature of the angel's greeting is that he does not address Mary with the usual Hebrew salutation, shalom peace be with you, but with the Greek greeting formula, kairé. I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, but it's kairé. Which we might well translate with the word hail, as the church does in the Marian prayer, pieced together from the words of the Annunciation narrative. Yet at this point, it is only right to draw out the true meaning of this word. It means rejoice. The exclamation from the angel, we could say, marks the true beginning of the New Testament. He thinks this is a, the true beginning of the New Testament, of the Gospels. Mark, where he introduces our Lord's birth by going to the prophecy in Isaiah, which we meditated on here a couple weeks ago, and goes from there to speak about the, John the Baptist. Luke also begins with John the Baptist, but even further back, as we read today, Zechariah. Gabriel telling him, you will bear a son. You and Elizabeth will have a son. And he will be the precursor to the Messiah. And he will free his people from this darkness, this bondage that they're in. St. John starts out much higher with the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, but the Word came into this world. St. Luke, or Benedict XVI, in considering St. Luke's Gospel, the exclamation from the angel, we could say, marks the true meaning of the New Testament, and that true meaning is joy. Rejoice. The word reappears during the holy night on the lips of the angel who says to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. It appears again in John's gospel at the encounter with the risen Lord. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, they rejoiced. Joy appears Pope Benedict goes on to say, in these texts, as a particular gift of the Holy Spirit, the true gift of the Redeemer. So a chord is sounded with the angel's salutation to Mary 
which then resounds throughout the life of the church. Its content is also present in the fundamental word that serves to designate the entire Christian message, gospel, good news. This is the good news. God so loved us that he sent his only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. And he sent his only son into the world in this manner that is, is nearly beyond comprehension. So I invite you to, again, contemplate the child and, and, and sometimes say, Lord, or God, Jesus, what have you done? That you should become like us. That your divinity was not something to be clung to, as St. Paul says to the Philippians. But he emptied himself, poured himself out, becoming a slave. The churches each year wants us to recall this mystery. And she's urging us to renew the, this memory of the great love of God. He emptied himself. This is the Christmas story. And this is what is so awesome about Christmas in the true, in the true meaning of the word. It's really awesome. That is, it's, it's inspiring. And this is what I ask you. Let that settle into your soul. So what does that mean? What does it mean for me? How does that, how, how, might, this, how might this change my life? Um, how might it impact my day-to-day -day reactions to things or my encountering the different um, challenges and difficulties that I face? At least on one, one hand, the, um, the fact that God's always with me. That um, if I encounter anything in my life that I find difficult, um, hard to understand, um, something that is, is I, I, I don't know why perhaps God allows it, and it causes me a certain amount of fear or concern that our, our Lord understands that too, that God understands that and that he felt that. I mean, he certainly, he, he knew what it was mm, to be afraid in the agony in the garden. That he let that fear overcome him? No, but his, his holy humanity was afraid of the suffering. It was weighing on him that was about to happen. He did not let it overcome him. Did he know what disappointment was? Yes. He knew what it, he knew what it was to have a friend, one of his disciples, turn his back on him, betray him. He knew what it was like to have friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He enjoyed being in their home. He knew what it was to have a, have a nice meal with friends and enjoy their company. He knew what it was to feel thirst and to be hot. He was tired out from his journey. He was sitting by the well of Jacob and he was thirsty, he says. He was so exhausted at one time he's in a boat and he sleeps through a storm. The apostles have to wake him up. What it says is that God did not stay detached from his creatures, human creatures. 
he did not just create them and, and in a sense invite them to be and come with him in heaven, but before that, or in order that they could do that, in order to redeem them, he got down in their world. He came to our world. He dwelt among us. And that's why Dorothy Sayers in her unorthodox way, but whatever game he's playing, he played fair. He played by the rules. He came into this world and he accepted all the limitations. And there's no, I don't think there's, I don't think there's an emotion a difficulty or a situation that we can face that our Lord does not, cannot um, identify with us in that thing. He can't be with us. So there's no time that we can pray to Jesus and get the idea that he doesn't understand. He doesn't know what I'm going through. or He doesn't see how much I'm suffering. He's been there and done that, to put it colloquially. He's been through it. And that should give us a great joy. He's here to accompany us. He's here for the, the long haul. And that human nature is now in heaven, always being united to the Godhead, and then intercedes constantly for our redemption. So there's nothing that we can feel, no situation we can have that's foreign to our Lord. And at the same time, he's always there, ready to hear from us, that which should give us a, a sense of confidence and when we pray to our Lord Jesus Christ that he wants to hear from us. He wants, he knows what, he, he wants you to articulate what's going on inside of you and he says, I know what you're going through. I understand that and I can help you. That's what, rejoice. And I suffered for you and I willingly accepted that. So that's the great news. That's the good news. This is what Christmas is, is telling us. Our, giving to us, offering to us the, the, the memory of, of our Lord's birth. And I think it, it, it's a challenge because our Lord also said, love one another as I have loved you. To, dry, to draw that out a little bit. I have loved you so much that I've gotten into your world and I share these experiences with you. And I think our present Holy Father is helping us to realize that as well put ourselves, throw ourselves into the world, the, the messiness of the world, and be ready to serve others, be ready to love others, be ready to understand and forgive others. Sicut delexi vos. That's love others as I have loved you. Exinonivit semendipsum. And that's a tall order, and it takes humility. And again, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis would agree, I'm sure, that's what the the nativity shows us. That's what, if we are to be able to accept this tall order of our Lord, we need to empty ourselves as well. We need to go along this path of humility, making ourselves small, making ourselves in a sense a child. And many times that's the best way to approach the, our Lord. With a childlike simplicity, with a childlike faith of a fourth grader who hears the the nativity story, here's the Christmas story, and he just accepts it. And that's, his, that's in his heart. And in a certain sense can draw out the consequences easily because he doesn't have, a fourth grader doesn't usually have as much pride to contend with, as much baggage that pride brings. To really understand what God has done, it means we we need this humility to enter into the scene, enter into how much he's poured himself out. 
if we're to be able to live the Sikha Telexivos, if we're to be able to really understand how much we should rejoice, what this good news really means, means we have to pour ourselves out as well. He's inviting us along that way. If you actually visit the site of in, in the Holy Land, of where our Lord is laid in the manger, you have to get down and, 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 and go through a small doorway, and it's an image of the humility of bowing down. So as you and I prepare for, for Christmas, this last week, the home stretch, we again ask the Holy Spirit that he would inspire us in order to be able to see if we can meet our Lord that low. If we can, if we can empty ourselves of our pride so that we can hear and rejoice in this good news. But because we're ready to pour ourselves out, we're ready to follow him along this path. St. Jose Maria in one of his homilies, he says, Christ triumphs through humility. It's the homily about Christmas. And he says, the child Jesus in the manger is like a professor. He's teaching me, even without using words. He's instructing me. He's given me a tremendous lesson there on that straw, in that cold and poverty. He's teaching me this way of humility. I'm understanding that God made himself so small, so defenseless, so human, and accepted many of the more difficulties of life. There was no room in the inn, and just that. No room in the inn for the, for the Son of God. Born in a, a stable, laid in a manger, and shepherds outskirts, somewhat separated from the mainstream of society, are the ones who share in this joy, the humble. These are, I offer these as some of the ideas that we can draw out in preparing for Christmas so that the Christmas joy enters our soul. And again, let us ask the Holy Spirit, I invite you to contemplate this scene yourself, ask for help. And this year we will ask Mary, as we always do, and we will also ask St. Joseph in a special way, as you may know, the year of St. Joseph that the Holy Father has declared, beginning December 8th, this past December 8th, and going to December 8th, 2021, that we ask him especially to help us and to be able to understand what God has done, that we live with him in the perplexities of the Christmas time, and that we, like him, grow through these things, becoming more humble, be more confident in God, in his providence, to understand who the child is, as Joseph would more and more understand what that means and how God has emptied himself so much. We end asking their intercession, and with this line from the Advent preface that we say these days, the second Advent preface, in his love, Christ has filled us with joy as we prepare to celebrate his birth, so that when he comes, he may find us watching in prayer and our hearts filled with wonder and praise. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.